you are now tuned into World War I Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, here to guide you through the labyrinth of memories and tales from the war to end all wars. Each Tuesday and Thursday, we dive headfirst into the captivating stories of World War I. We will traverse the trenches, soar with the Red Baron, and witness the dawn of modern warfare. We'll recount tales of courage and sacrifice, of human endurance against the odds, and of a world forever changed. But our journey through history doesn't stop there. For those of you eager to continue the exploration, we invite you to check out our sister podcast dedicated to World War II, which explores the next dramatic chapter of global conflict. You can find the link in the description or head over to podhour.com ww1. As the dawn broke on May 31, 1916, a chilling wind swept across the ironclad masses of British and German warships. Their destination was a patch of unforgiving waters in the North Sea known as Jutland. The stage was set for what would become one of the most colossal naval engagements in history, a battle that would pit the greatest sea powers of the day against each other in a contest not just of firepower, but of human courage, strategic wit, and the cold calculus of war. This was more than just a battle between nations, it was a clash of titans, of men whose decisions could reshape the world. On one side was Britain's Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, a man of quiet determination who bore the weight of his nation's expectations. On the other was Germany's Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer, a seasoned naval tactician who hoped to deliver a decisive blow to Britain's mighty Royal Navy. The Battle of Jutland is a tale of immense courage, devastating losses, and strategic maneuvers. It was a brutal testament to the horrifying scale of World War I and it left a profound impact that echoed through the rest of the conflict. This is the story of the men who fought, the decisions that were made, and the legacy of a battle that shaped the course of naval warfare. Embark on this voyage with us as we navigate through the chilling winds, roaring cannons, and the tumultuous tide of war. Witness the gathering storm, the lines drawn, the clash of titans, and the turning tides that led to a battle remembered, reinterpreted, and enshrined in the annals of history as the Battle of Jutland. Chapter 1. The Gathering Storm In the years before the guns of August 1914 roared into life, an intense rivalry simmered between Britain's Royal Navy and Germany's Kaiserlich Marine. This simmering competition was not just about the strength of steel or the number of warships but also a tussle between two formidable personalities. Admiral John Jackie Fisher and Grand Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz. John Fisher, known to his comrades as Jackie, was a man forged in the mold of Britain's legendary naval traditions. Ascending through the ranks to become the first sea lord, Fisher held a passion for innovation, pushing for technological advancements that he believed would keep the Royal Navy at the forefront of maritime power. He championed the development of the Dreadnought Battleship, a revolution in naval design that made every other battleship in the world obsolete virtually overnight. Across the North Sea, in the bustling shipyards of Wilhelmshaven and Kiel, Germany's Alfred von Tirpitz was laboring under a similar vision. As Grand Admiral and Secretary of State of the German Imperial Naval Office, Tirpitz had one ambitious goal, to build a fleet that could challenge Britain's supremacy at sea. 
Charismatic and driven, Tirpitz steered German naval policy with a singular focus on achieving this objective. His naval laws, passed in the late 1890s and early 1900s, sparked an arms race that strained not just the economies of both nations, but also the very fabric of international relations. Despite the icy North Sea separating them, Fischer and Tirpitz were linked by their shared obsession, a quest for naval dominance. As shipyards churned out ever larger and more powerful vessels, their rivalry took on an almost personal dimension, each man determined to outdo the other. However, beneath the surface of this rivalry, tensions were simmering. This arms race created unease in the chancelleries and royal courts of Europe. Nations allied with Britain grew nervous about Germany's ambitions, and Germany's allies felt a similar concern about Britain's attempts to maintain its naval superiority. The stage was set for conflict, a powder keg awaiting a spark. As the war clouds gathered, the rival fleets, personified by the relentless determination of Fischer and Tirpitz, cast long shadows over the continent. Their rivalry at sea would soon escalate into a titanic clash that would shake the world to its very core. Picture the scene, Sarajevo, June 28, 1914. The streets are crowded with onlookers, and the air is filled with an electric sense of anticipation. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, is visiting. Resplendent in his military uniform, the Archduke is the embodiment of the power and prestige of an empire that stretches across Central Europe. In the throng, a young man named Gavrilo Princip waits with bated breath, his heart pounding in his chest. Princip, part of the nationalist group Young Bosnia, is intent on ending Austro-Hungarian rule over Bosnia. His weapon, a Browning semi-automatic pistol, feels heavy in his pocket. As the motorcade carrying the Archduke and his wife, Sophie, rounds a corner, fate presents Princip with a fateful opportunity. He steps forward and fires, striking the royal couple. In the chaos that ensues, the echo of the shots reverberates far beyond the confines of the city streets. The assassination is a shockwave that ripples across Europe. Empires are thrown into turmoil. Austria-Hungary, backed by Germany, issues a draconian ultimatum to Serbia, blaming it for the assassination. When Serbia cannot comply with all the demands, war is declared. Russia, tied to Serbia through a web of Slavic Brotherhood and diplomatic treaties, mobilizes in defense. France, bound by its own agreements with Russia, follows suit. Over in Britain, the initial reaction is one of shock and dismay. But as Germany invades neutral Belgium to outflank the French army, Britain is drawn in, honoring its commitment to defend Belgian neutrality. And so, the great powers of Europe march to war, their actions echoing down the hallways of power and onto the decks of the battleships at anchor. In the North Sea, Fischer and Tirpitz can only watch as the world around them descends into conflict, their rival fleets now destined to meet in the deadliest of dances. The stage was set for the Battle of Jutland. The powder keg had been ignited by the shots fired in Sarajevo, and the world would never be the same again. Amidst the chaos of World War I, a quiet intensity filled the war rooms of Britain and Germany. Here, 
the naval commanders were developing strategies to control the seas and decide the fate of nations. In Britain, the main man behind the plans was Admiral Sir John Jellicoe. Steadfast and methodical, Jellicoe knew that Britain's lifeline lay across the waters. Britain, as an island nation, relied heavily on its seaborne trade for survival. Anything that threatened this trade was a direct threat to Britain itself. Jellicoe was acutely aware of his immense responsibility to protect this lifeline. With a formidable fleet at his command, his plan was straightforward, maintain a distant blockade of Germany, strangling its trade and preventing the German high seas fleet from breaking out into the Atlantic. His tactics reflected his cautious nature. He chose to keep his grand fleet dispersed in safer Scottish waters, away from possible submarine attacks, and only concentrated his forces when a significant German operation was expected. Meanwhile, Germany's Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer faced a more challenging situation. His high seas fleet was smaller, and a British blockade choked Germany. The Royal Navy's blockade was slowly strangling Germany's economy and its ability to sustain the war effort. Breaking this blockade was Scheer's primary mission, but he had to do it without exposing his fleet to the full might of the British Grand Fleet. Scheer conceived a bold plan. He decided to lure a portion of the British fleet out of their safe harbors and destroy it before the rest of the fleet could assist. By defeating the British fleet in detail, he aimed to erode the Royal Navy's numerical superiority. The vast North Sea was the chessboard upon which these strategies would play out. A game of cat and mouse ensued, with both sides seeking to gain the upper hand. The silence of the seas was occasionally broken by the roar of guns, as skirmishes erupted between the rival fleets. But these were only the preliminary exchanges in the titanic struggle that was to come. The Battle of Jutland awaited, where these grand strategies would clash in a tempest of steel and fire. Chapter 2 Battle Lines Drawn At the heart of every war machine, whether it's a dreadnought bristling with guns or a sleek cruiser built for speed, are the people who guide it, care for it, and bring it to life. During the Battle of Jutland, the destinies of two mighty fleets rested in the hands of their commanders. Britain's Admiral Sir John Jellicoe and Germany's Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer. A man of quiet demeanor, Jellicoe was a contrast to the image of a brash and boisterous sea captain. His calm exterior belied a sharp mind that was always analyzing, always planning. His rise through the ranks of the Royal Navy had imbued him with a wealth of experience and a deep understanding of naval warfare. While his methodical nature sometimes earned him criticism for being overly cautious, Jellicoe knew the immense weight of his duty. The survival of Britain was intrinsically tied to the grand fleet he commanded. He was, as one wartime British prime minister would later describe him, the only man on either side who could lose the war in an afternoon. On the other side of the North Sea, Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer commanded the German High Seas Fleet. Unlike his British counterpart, Scheer was known for his aggressive tactics and willingness to take risks. A skilled and experienced naval officer, Scheer was unflinching in his mission to break the British blockade and turn the tide of the war in Germany's favor. Scheer's aggressive mindset was balanced by a keen tactical understanding of his fleet's strengths and weaknesses. 
He knew that taking on the entire British Grand Fleet in a pitched battle was suicide, so he sought to divide and conquer, to isolate portions of the British fleet and destroy them. These were the men who stood behind the machines of war, their characters as contrasting as the nations they represented. Bound by duty and driven by a shared objective to safeguard their nations, Jellicoe and Shear were two captains steering their ships through the tumultuous waters of war. As their fleets converged on Jutland, each man was about to face his greatest test, a challenge that would shape their legacies and the future of naval warfare. As the days passed, a sense of inevitability loomed over the naval bases of Scapa Flow in Britain and Wilhelmshaven in Germany. The steady rhythm of sailors' feet echoed through the ironclad behemoths as the great fleets prepared for the impending confrontation. In Scapa Flow, a remote harbor in the Orkney Islands, the British Grand Fleet made ready. Over 150 warships, from hulking dreadnoughts to nimble destroyers, were busy with preparations. The air was filled with the drone of machines and the shouted orders of officers, creating an orchestral harmony of purpose. Men scurried over the decks, loading shells into the massive guns, checking equipment, and carrying out a thousand other tasks. They were the cogs in the vast machine that was the Royal Navy, each man knowing that his duty, no matter how small, was integral to the greater task ahead. Admiral Jellicoe, the stoic commander of this mighty armada, was found on the bridge of the battleship HMS Iron Duke, finalizing his plans. His steady gaze swept over the bustling activity of his fleet. Each ship was a testament to Britain's naval prowess, and each man a testament to its spirit. Meanwhile, in the German port of Wilhelmshaven, a similar scene was unfolding. Here, Vice Admiral Scheer presided over the High Seas Fleet, an impressive collection of over a hundred warships. His command included a range of vessels, from cutting-edge battleships like the SMS Koenig to swift torpedo boats. The air in Wilhelmshaven was thick with tension and the smell of oil and coal, punctuated by the sounds of hammers and steam engines. Everywhere one looked, sailors hurriedly readied their ships for battle, their faces set in grim determination. From the deck of his flagship, the SMS Friedrich der Gross, Scheer observed his fleet. Every ship, every man, was a testament to Germany's resolve. He knew the task ahead would be perilous, but he was ready to do his duty for the fatherland. As the final preparations were made, the two fleets readied themselves to set sail towards their rendezvous at Jutland. They were the mightiest navies of their time, and their looming clash would be one for the ages. Each ship was a steel titan bristling with guns, each crew a band of brothers bound by duty, and at their helm, two commanders whose strategies and decisions would soon be put to the ultimate test. The moment had arrived. As dawn broke over the North Sea, the distant rumble of engines filled the air. The two greatest fleets the world had ever seen were on the move, their mighty silhouettes cutting through the morning mist. Admiral Jellicoe, from his vantage point on the bridge of the HMS Iron Duke, watched as the Grand Fleet moved out of Scapa Flow. It was a sight to behold. More than a hundred vessels, from mammoth dreadnoughts to swift destroyers, fell into formation, their steel hulls slicing through the slate-gray waters. The rhythmic throb of their engines echoed across the water, 
a testament to British engineering and resolve. Jellicoe, his gaze fixed on the horizon, knew the monumental importance of the task that lay ahead. Farther south, Vice Admiral Scheer, aboard the SNS Friedrich der Gross, was guiding his own fleet out of Wilhelmshaven. The High Seas Fleet, a formidable array of battleships, cruisers, and destroyers, set a course towards the waters of Jutland. The German fleet, smaller than the Grand Fleet but no less impressive, moved with a singular purpose. Scheer, a figure of stoic determination, knew the odds he faced. Yet, he believed in his men and his plan, a plan that sought to alter the balance of power in the North Sea. As the two fleets steamed toward their rendezvous, hundreds of miles apart yet drawn together by the inexorable pull of destiny, anticipation filled the air. Sailors carried out their duties, their faces hardened by the prospect of the battle to come. Yet, amidst the tension, there was also a sense of pride and determination. Whether they served under Jellicoe or Sheer, each sailor knew that they were about to play a part in a battle that would go down in history. Navigating the vast expanse of the North Sea, each fleet maneuvered into position. The commanders, with their maps and intelligence reports, plotted courses and planned tactics. It was a deadly game of chess on a grand scale, with the North Sea as the board and warships as the pieces. A sense of destiny hung in the air as the fleets moved closer to their fateful encounter. The Battle of Jutland was about to begin. The world held its breath waiting for the storm to break. Chapter 3, Clash of Titans May 31, 1916 The North Sea The quiet of the afternoon was shattered by the thunderous boom of guns. The Battle of Jutland had begun. At around 2.20 p.m., British Vice Admiral David Beatty's battlecruiser squadron, performing a scouting operation ahead of the main Grand Fleet, encountered Vice Admiral Franz von Hipper's German battlecruisers. Two mighty lines of steel and gunpowder faced each other across the gray, choppy waves. The first to engage was the HMS Lion, Beatty's flagship. With a roar that echoed over the sea, its massive 13 and a half inch guns belched fire and smoke, sending a salvo hurtling towards the German line. The opening salvo of Jutland had been fired. Aboard the German flagship, the SMS Lutzo, von Hipper watched as plumes of water erupted around his ships, British shells falling short of their targets. But the German response was swift. With a deep, reverberating boom, the Lutzo and her sister ships returned fire, their guns lighting up the dull afternoon sky with a deadly ballet of fire and smoke. In the initial exchanges, the British found themselves at a disadvantage. Beatty's aggressive approach had led his force into a trap. The German guns, with superior range and accuracy, found their marks more often. The British battlecruisers, designed for speed rather than armor, were unable to withstand the heavy German fire. The HMS Indefatigable and HMS Queen Mary, hit by German shells, exploded in spectacular but horrifying displays of flame and smoke, sinking swiftly with most of their crews. Amid the chaos, Beatty watched in grim silence from the Lion's Bridge. He had hoped to lure the German battlecruisers towards Jellicoe's main force, but the plan was turning into a disaster. 
But even in this dire situation, the British admiral remained unflinching, his gaze fixed on the horizon where Jellicoe's fleet was hastening to his aid. The opening moves of Jutland had not gone in Britain's favor, but the game was far from over. The main event was yet to come. As the day wore on, the battle raged with no clear victor in sight. But as the sun began to set, casting long shadows over the North Sea, a new phase of the Battle of Jutland began, a phase dominated by confusion, daring maneuvers, and chaos. The British Grand Fleet, under Admiral Jellicoe, was now fully engaged, crossing in front of the German line in a maneuver known as Crossing the T. This position allowed the British to bring all their guns to bear while the Germans could only respond with their forward-facing guns. For a while, it seemed that the tide was turning in favor of the British. Yet, the onset of darkness brought new challenges. The British, lacking the Germans' effective searchlights and night-fighting training, found it increasingly difficult to target their enemy. German Vice Admiral Scheer, recognizing this, made a daring decision. He ordered his fleet to carry out a risky maneuver, a complete turn in unison, to escape the trap Jellicoe had set. The battle about turn was a dangerous move, but it was their best chance to escape the punishing British fire. At the same time, chaos ensued as smaller skirmishes broke out across the darkened seascape. Destroyers clashed in the gloom, the orange glow of their guns briefly illuminating the dark waves. Torpedoes streaked through the water, leaving wakes that glowed eerily in the moonlight. Amidst this chaos, both sides tried to gain the upper hand. The darkness also made communication between ships difficult. Flag signals were hard to see, and wireless messages could be intercepted. The usual order of a naval battle was replaced by a melee where ships often found themselves firing upon friend and foe alike. Yet, amidst the confusion, there were also moments of extraordinary bravery as sailors and officers alike fought to keep their ships afloat and their guns firing. As the night wore on, the Battle of Jutland became a duel not only between the British and German fleets but also against the elements and the disarray that darkness brought. The stakes remained high, and in the confusion of the night, the outcome was far from certain. At the heart of the Battle of Jutland were the colossal dreadnoughts, the pride of both the British and German navies. These floating fortresses were a marvel of engineering, with steel-plated armor, monstrous guns, and powerful engines that could propel these titans at impressive speeds. Now, they were locked in a cataclysmic duel, belching fire and destruction as they sought to assert dominance over the North Sea. On the British side, Ships like the HMS Iron Duke, Admiral Jellicoe's flagship, and the HMS Warspite stood out. The Iron Duke, an embodiment of Britain's naval might, unleashed salvo after salvo of its formidable 13.5-inch guns, the air around it vibrating with the force of each discharge. The Warspite, though smaller, proved its mettle by successfully engaging multiple German vessels. Despite steering damage that left it sailing in circles for a while, the war spite fought on valiantly, a symbol of British determination. The German fleet had its own ironclad heroes. The SMS Durflinger and the SMS Sablitz, both battlecruisers, weathered the storm of British gunfire with grim resolve. 
The Durflinger, involved in the destruction of two British battlecruisers, earned the nickname Iron Dog for its tenacity. The Sadlitz, meanwhile, absorbed over 20 heavy shell hits but remained in the fight, a testament to German engineering and the skill of her crew. The Dreadnoughts were the centerpieces of the battle, their thunderous cannons dictating the ebb and flow of the conflict. Yet, they were more than just instruments of war. Each was a small city at sea, filled with men who served their respective countries with unwavering courage. From stokers in the hot, hellish engine rooms to gunners at the artillery, each man played a vital role in the combat. They toiled, sweat, and bled amidst the thunder of guns and the sickening lurch of their vessels under enemy fire. As the dreadnoughts clashed, the battle around them continued unabated. Smaller cruisers and destroyers darted among the larger ships, adding their guns to the maelstrom. Above them, the sky was a canvas of gun smoke and the reddish-orange glow of the setting sun, a surreal backdrop to the unfolding chaos. The Battle of Jutland, an epic contest of ironclad leviathans and the men within them, raged on into the night. It was a clash of titans, a true testament to the power and horror of naval warfare. Chapter 4 Turning Tides As the Battle of Jutland raged on into the early morning hours of June 1, 1916, both fleets found themselves grappling not only with their enemy but with the vagaries of the fog of war. This term refers not to an actual mist but to the uncertainty, confusion, and chaos that pervades a battlefield, affecting decision-making and obscuring the reality of the situation. For Admiral Jellicoe aboard the Iron Duke, the challenge was to maintain a clear picture of the battle. Amid the roar of guns, the whistling of shells, and the disruption caused by darkness, it was a monumental task. He relied on a mix of signal flags, searchlights, and the newly introduced wireless telegraphy for communication. Yet, Conflicting reports and the inherent delay in these methods often made it difficult to react swiftly to changes on the battlefield. Meanwhile, for German Vice Admiral Scheer, the fog of war presented an opportunity. Using the cover of darkness and smoke, he attempted several daring maneuvers to break away from the superior British fleet. His ships moved like shadows in the night momentarily appearing under the glare of British searchlights before disappearing again. At one point, Scheer even ordered a squadron of his destroyers to launch a daring torpedo attack against the British line, causing enough confusion to cover another retreat by the main German fleet. Throughout the battle, the fog of war affected not only the admirals but also the sailors on the front lines. Many had to make split-second decisions based on limited information. Gunners strained their eyes through sights and binoculars, attempting to distinguish friend from foe. Watch officers on the bridges of warships, their faces lit by the pale glow of chart tables, endeavored to navigate through the chaotic melee. It was a test of both nerve and skill, with the smallest miscalculation risking friendly fire or a catastrophic collision. The Battle of Jutland, like all battles, was a swirling maelstrom of noise, flame, and steel. Amid this chaos, the fog of war was an ever-present adversary. It made the line between victory and defeat, life and death, even thinner and more tenuous. Both the British and German forces battled it as much as they battled each other, 
a testament to the complexity and uncertainty inherent in warfare. As the early morning light of June 1, 1916, began to illuminate the battle-scarred North Sea, a crucial decision was being made on the bridge of the German flagship SMS Friedrich der Gross. Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer, recognizing the power of the British Grand Fleet, made the pragmatic choice to withdraw his forces towards home waters. Scheer's decision was not an easy one. He had engaged the British fleet bravely and inflicted significant damage, but the British still held the advantage in numbers and firepower. The German fleet, battered and bruised from the overnight struggle, faced an uphill battle if the conflict continued. Choosing to retreat was not a sign of defeat, but a strategic calculation. Scheer aimed to preserve his fleet's strength for future engagements. He knew that the survival of his fleet was crucial to maintaining a balance of power in the North Sea, providing a deterrence against the potential British blockade. The withdrawal itself was a tactical masterpiece. Using the morning mist as a cover, the German fleet slipped away, heading southeast towards Wilhelmshaven. British forces, realizing the German movement, pursued but were hampered by the minefields laid by German ships. Throughout the retreat, the German Navy showed remarkable discipline. Damaged ships were defended, and slower vessels were protected by faster ones. The fleet moved cohesively, the overnight chaos replaced by a sense of grim determination. As the sun rose higher, the British pursuit waned. Jellicoe, wary of the risk of mines and U-boats closer to the German coast, chose not to pursue aggressively. By midday, the battle was effectively over. Scheer's strategic withdrawal showcased not only his pragmatism as a commander but also the discipline and resilience of the German high seas fleet. While the Battle of Jutland did not end with a decisive victory for Germany, it ensured the continuation of the naval war and reinforced the mutual respect between the two great sea powers of the age. In the wake of the Battle of Jutland, the North Sea was a site of both devastation and somber reflection. The waves, which had roared with the tumult of battle, now lapped quietly against the hulls of damaged vessels. Smoke and the scent of spent gunpowder hung heavy in the air. As the adrenaline of combat faded, both sides took stock of the battle's toll. The British had lost 14 ships, including three battlecruisers, and over 6,000 men. The Germans, meanwhile, had lost 11 ships and around 2,500 men. The North Sea had become an unwilling graveyard, a testament to the ferocity of the largest naval battle of World War I. Admiral Jellicoe, aboard the HMS Iron Duke, was steeped in contemplation. While the British fleet had inflicted considerable damage on the Germans and remained a formidable force, the victory was not decisive. Britain's naval superiority was unchallenged, but the fleet had taken significant losses. There was a sense of dissatisfaction, of an opportunity missed. In Germany, the mood was cautiously optimistic. Admiral Scheer and his men, having returned to the safe harbor of Wilhelmshaven, were lauded as heroes for holding their own against the might of the Royal Navy. Despite the damage to their fleet, their strategic withdrawal had ensured the continuation of the naval war. The Battle of Jutland, though not a decisive victory, 
had become a symbol of German resilience. The days and weeks following the battle saw both nations mourn their dead, repair their ships, and analyze their strategies. While the clash of dreadnoughts had ended inconclusively, it had highlighted the changing nature of naval warfare and the bravery of those who fight at sea. The Battle of Jutland, an epic clash of iron and fire, ended not with a bang but a quiet sense of introspection. As the sun set on the North Sea, the waves whispered tales of courage, sacrifice, and the enduring human spirit, forever etching the events of May 31 and June 1, 1916, into the annals of history. Chapter 5 Impact and Aftermath In the aftermath of the Battle of Jutland, a debate brewed. Who had truly emerged victorious from the smoke-laden waters of the North Sea? On the face of it, Britain had retained control of the sea and inflicted heavier losses on the German fleet. But was it a clear-cut victory? Or was it, as some argued, a Pyrrhic victory? A Pyrrhic victory is named after King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who, after a battle against the Romans, remarked, another such victory and we are undone. It refers to a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to defeat. In the context of the Battle of Jutland, the term captured the complexity of its outcome. Admiral John Jellicoe, entrusted with the might of the Royal Navy, had faced a formidable challenge. His task had been not just to defeat the German fleet, but to annihilate it. Only then could Britain secure its control over the seas and effectively blockade Germany, thus starving it of vital supplies. While Jellicoe had indeed forced the German high seas fleet into retreat, he had not achieved the complete victory he had hoped for. The British losses were heavy. Several capital ships, including the battlecruisers HMS Invincible, Indefatigable, and Queen Mary, had been lost, taking with them thousands of men. The invincibility of the Royal Navy had been called into question. The human cost, the damage to morale, and the resources required for repairs and replacements gave the victory a bitter aftertaste. For the Germans, the Battle of Jutland, while not a decisive victory, provided a much-needed morale boost. Despite being outnumbered and outgunned, they had stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the greatest navy in the world and lived to tell the tale. They had not broken the British blockade, but their fleet remained a threat, ensuring that a significant portion of the Royal Navy remained tied down in the North Sea. In the end, the Battle of Jutland was a Pyrrhic victory for Britain. It had won the battle, but not without substantial cost and not conclusively enough to end the naval war. Both sides claimed victory and both had reasons to celebrate and to mourn. The largest naval battle of World War I was not a clear-cut triumph but a complex weave of strategic, tactical, and human factors, a testament to the harsh reality of warfare. While the guns of the Battle of Jutland fell silent in early June 1916, the ripples of this colossal naval conflict reached far beyond the North Sea. It impacted not only the course of the war but also the lives of the people and the dynamics of naval warfare. On the front lines, the morale of the sailors was a mixed bag. The British Navy, while maintaining their proud tradition, was sobered by the unexpected losses. Sailors who had viewed their mighty vessels as invincible were now struck by the grim realities of war. 
On the German side, there was a surge of pride and confidence. They had faced down the giant and lived, giving them a sense of hope even in the face of a grueling war. In the halls of power, the outcome of Jutland stirred intense debates. In Britain, the public, initially jubilant at the news of a naval victory, was soon disillusioned as the details of the losses emerged. Admiral Jellicoe found himself in the storm's eye, criticized for his caution. However, the British Admiralty recognized the difficult position Jellicoe had been in, and he remained in command of the Grand Fleet. Meanwhile, in Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II hailed the High Seas Fleet's performance as a victory. Admiral Scheer was celebrated as a hero who had defended the fatherland against a powerful enemy. Yet, beneath the surface, there was a recognition of the harsh reality the Royal Navy still controlled the seas. On a broader level, the Battle of Jutland influenced the strategies of the war. Britain, realizing the risks of a direct naval confrontation, leaned more towards the blockade strategy to weaken Germany. Germany, for its part, placed increased emphasis on unrestricted submarine warfare, which would ultimately draw the United States into the war in 1917. Finally, Jutland had a profound impact on the development of naval warfare. It underscored the importance of several factors, the increasing role of technology in communication and weaponry, the potential of submarines as a disruptive force, and the inherent vulnerability of even the mightiest of battleships. Like a stone cast into a pond, the Battle of Jutland sent ripples through every level of the war, the nations involved, and the nature of naval conflict itself. It was a crucial junction in the narrative of World War I, shaping the course of events to come. As the echoes of the Battle of Jutland faded, the world continued its grim march through the blood-soaked fields of World War I. The Great War, as it was often called, was not confined to the trenches of the Western Front or the waters of the North Sea. It was a global conflict, leaving no corner of the world untouched. In the palaces and parliamentary halls of Europe, leaders grappled with the heavy toll of the war. In Britain, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith faced mounting criticism for the conduct of the war, leading to his resignation later in 1916 and David Lloyd George taking the helm. King George V, while largely a symbolic figure, provided a much-needed pillar of stability and hope for a nation in turmoil. Across the Channel, French General Joseph Joffrey was dealing with the bloody attrition of the Battle of Verdun, where hundreds of thousands of lives were being lost for negligible territorial gains. This battle, much like Jutland, highlighted the horrific cost of modern warfare and the complex nature of victory and defeat. Far from the muddy trenches and the gunsmoke-filled seas, the impact of the war was being felt. In the United States, President Woodrow Wilson was trying to maintain a precarious neutrality. Yet, Germany's increased reliance on unrestricted submarine warfare, a direct consequence of their inability to break the British blockade enforced by the same navy that fought at Jutland, was inching the U.S. closer to joining the Allied cause. In far-flung colonies in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific, the war disrupted lives and economies. Troops were recruited for distant battles, resources were redirected, and local conflicts were magnified through the lens of the global war. The Battle of Jutland, 
while seemingly distant, was a part of this global narrative. As the world continued to be embroiled in war, the Battle of Jutland stood as a stark reminder of the scale and cost of the conflict. It was a testament to the bravery and sacrifice of the men who fought and a somber reflection of a world at war. Amidst the grand strategies and geopolitical considerations, it was, at its core, a human story of men who sailed into the unforgiving North Sea, their lives forever marked by the largest naval battle of the Great War. Chapter 6 The Legacy of Jutland The Battle of Jutland, as harrowing as it was, offered invaluable lessons to the nations involved and the world at large. These teachings emerged from the smoke and fire, whispering in the ears of those who were willing to listen, and promising to shape the future of naval warfare and strategy. For the Royal Navy, the painful reality of their vulnerable battlecruisers was laid bare. Faulty shell-handling practices and inadequate armor had turned these supposed queens of the sea into potential death traps. The necessity of improved damage control procedures and better armor, especially over vital areas like ammunition magazines, became painfully clear. These lessons, although learned at great cost, would significantly influence future ship designs. In the realm of naval tactics and strategy, Jutland illuminated the importance of communication and decision-making. Admiral Jellicoe's challenging position as the commander of the Grand Fleet was a textbook case of the fog of war. The need for accurate intelligence, effective communication, and decisive leadership in the heat of battle was a lesson learned not just by Jellicoe, but military leaders worldwide. The battle also underlined the changing nature of naval warfare. The role of lighter, faster ships and the increasing importance of submarines and mines became clear. Jutland hinted at a future where big-gun battleships would share, and eventually cede, their dominance to aircraft carriers and submarines a transition that would fully come into play during the Second World War. Meanwhile, the world learned a lesson in the nature of modern warfare. The public's romantic notions of war were dashed on the harsh rocks of reality. The Battle of Jutland and battles like Verdun and the Somme shattered any lingering illusions of a quick and glorious war. The world saw the brutal efficiency of modern military technology and the horrifying human cost of its use. The Battle of Jutland, with its thunderous salvos and swirling mists, was a stern teacher. The lessons it imparted shaped the future of naval warfare and left an indelible mark on the pages of history. As with all such lessons, they came at a price, paid in steel and blood on the turbulent waves of the North Sea. While the Battle of Jutland receded into history, the memories of those tumultuous days were etched deeply in the hearts of the people and inscribed in stone across the nations involved. Monuments rose, casting long shadows, and personal reminiscences were passed down, each telling their version of the colossal naval engagement. In Britain, the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire bears the names of the fallen of Jutland. This sacred spot, amidst the whispering trees, offers a place for reflection and remembrance. It stands as a silent tribute to the bravery and sacrifice of those who sailed into the Grey North Sea, many never to return. In Germany, a massive naval memorial overlooks the sea at Le Beau, near Kiel. Here, 
the names of the German sailors lost at Jutland and in other naval engagements are inscribed. Rising against the sky, it speaks of the valor of the men of the high seas fleet and the heavy price they paid. Personal memories, too, lingered. Families in Britain and Germany would pass down stories, each a personal testament to the battle. From the letters of a young sailor depicting the thunderous salvos and the grim aftermath, to the diary of a German officer detailing the tense anticipation and the hard-fought engagement, these personal narratives offered a deeply human perspective to the grand historical event. In museums, artifacts from the battle a battered ensign, a shell casing, a sailor's cap offer tangible connections to the past. Each object, however mundane or grand, tells a story, offering glimpses into the lives of the men who fought and the ships they served on. In literature and art, the Battle of Jutland found its reflection too. Paintings captured the fury of the engagement, the steel behemoths wreathed in smoke and flame, while poems and novels explored the human experiences within the ironclad hulls. The Battle of Jutland, thus, lived on in monuments and memories, in stories and keepsakes. It echoed in the silent reverence of memorials, in the crackling pages of old letters, in the gleaming relics in museum showcases, and in the vibrant strokes of a painting. These are the vessels that carry the legacy of the battle, preserving its echoes for future generations. With over a century of distance, we can now view the Battle of Jutland from the broader perspective of history. It remains not only a significant chapter in the annals of naval warfare, but also a pivotal moment in the larger tapestry of the 20th century. From a military standpoint, Jutland marked the culmination of an era dominated by the dreadnought and the battleship. The tactical and strategic lessons from the battle influenced future naval doctrine, not just for Britain and Germany, but worldwide. The primacy of aircraft carriers in later naval conflicts can trace a lineage back to the learnings of Jutland and the evolving understanding of naval warfare. Historians have long debated the impact of Jutland on the outcome of World War I. While the battle didn't decisively break Germany's naval strength, it did ensure the continued effectiveness of the British naval blockade. This blockade significantly strained the German economy and civilian morale, contributing to the eventual collapse of the Central Powers in 1918. The human aspect of Jutland also had profound implications. The loss of life shocked nations and dented public morale, further diminishing the initial enthusiasm for the war. The heroism and sacrifice of the sailors became a symbol of the broader human cost of the conflict. These sentiments fueled post-war movements for peace and disarmament, contributing to a shift in public attitudes towards war. Moreover, Jutland reflected the larger geopolitical tensions of the era, the naval arms race, imperial competition, and the intricate web of alliances that sparked World War I. It stood as a grim testament to the destructive potential of industrialized warfare, a theme that would tragically echo throughout the century. In cultural memory, Jutland's legacy is complex. It has been celebrated for the courage of its sailors, analyzed for its tactical lessons, and mourned for its staggering human cost. It serves as a mirror, reflecting the attitudes, technologies, and ideologies of its time. Thus, the Battle of Jutland transcends its immediate historical context. 
It serves as a pivot point in naval history, a symbol of the human cost of war, and a window into the broader currents of the early 20th century. Like a lighthouse on a distant shore, it illuminates our understanding of a turbulent era that shaped the course of our world today.